The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with a special anniversary edition episode of Rational Security for September 11th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, the Anniversary Hot Take Takedown Edition. In the episode, Jurassic, Anderson, and Rosenstein were joined by former Rational Security hosts Benjamin Wittes and Shane Harris to discuss and debate their national security hot takes. This is Rational Security. So Ben and Shane, you have now, over the past year, gotten 52, or if if you're about as inefficient as we are, perhaps as many as 78 hours of your life back from not doing Rational Security each week. What have you done with that time to make it worthwhile? Wordle. Oh, good answer. <laughs> I've seen your Twitter. I know that's true. I have entertained unreasonable requests uh, and <laughs> demands from lawfare contributors and editors. <laughs> <laughs> Including me on Rational Security 2.0 a few times. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it just it frees up more time to not answer emails. <laughs> Excellent. You filled the empty space with more empty space. That's correct. That's pretty zen. The real question is, do you two approve of what we've done with the joint? After, after a year, after a full year, now you know, you've, you have observed the wasteland that is Rational Security 2.0, the smoldering ruin of your creation. Sit in judgment. Alan has some tacky art up on the wall. I've got a light up St. Polly's Girl sign. Quint has got Mark's volumes stacked up in every corner. Like we have made a mess of this clubhouse, you guys. Started. This feels like a very loaded question to me, I will say. But no, I think I like what you've done with the place. I just want to say that the only response to this question is to pour myself some scotch. Oh. And, and it is not just scotch. It is Game of Thrones what? Scotch. Wow. Somebody sent us years ago during the Trump administration a Game of Thrones House of Targaryen Cardew Gold Reserve single malt scotch. And I think the only way to sufficiently change the subject rather than answer this question, which would require that I either praise or criticize, uh, is to pour. 
This is how my father used to deal with the same problem. <laughs> just take a, a long, a long, hard drink and just silence. Whenever Scott would ask him if he loved him, just a long, <laughs> long <laughs> pause and then. I didn't know this was a therapy podcast now. Oh, they all are. Somebody call Esther Perel. Get her in here. <laughs> they all are. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. nothing. It's just Rational Security 2.0 because we've officially been doing this for a whole year now. This is our anniversary episode, and that means I am now abandoning the habit of giving subtitles that reference sequels because it got really, really hard towards the end there. Sorry, listeners, I just want to say... Um, it has been incredible work by Scott, and I am so glad to no longer be woken up at three in the morning by panicked Scott calls right before taping, you know, with a mental breakdown because he can't figure out a pun for, for this week. So I'm I'm glad that this chapter is over. Long live the next Screaming, year. just name a movie. Now name the next movie. What's the next movie? What's the next movie? <laughs> I also just want to say that I just, you know, I, I'm a true, a real believer in committing to the bit. And in Rational Security 1.0, there was no bit that we committed to, except for Shane's very cheerful, hello, and welcome to Rational Security. Um, there was no bit that we committed to the way you, Scott, have committed to uh, referencing sequels that nobody has ever heard of. <laughs> nor asked for, nor won. I just want to say it's a, we, 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 we in the former Rational Security community have, have noticed it. We salute you. It's also good to bring this one to a close at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Life is just one big, long series of bits and then you die, as they say. Um, but I am, for lack of this bit, thrilled to still be joined, despite my lack of bits, uh, by my two co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And of course, my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Oh, we are excited to be joined by two Rational Security co-hosts, Emeritus. I've been practicing at home, Ben. You'll be proud to learn. I, I am pleased. Emeriti? Emeritus? Oh, it may be Emeriti. It's an emeritocracy. Emeritus, like moose. Emeritus. Emeriti. We're sticking with Emer Emeritus. I got it so far. So good. I'm going to stick with that one. Shane Harris and Benjamin Wainis. Shane and Ben, thank you so much for being here today. Kibbles and bets. You're welcome. We are <laughs> excited about it. Well, we are excited to be doing something a little different today. We didn't want to celebrate our one-year anniversary simply by going through our usual show format. Instead, we're going to try something a little different. And folks may not know this, but during that brief dark period between the rational securities, when we were trying to figure out what to do with this particular slot, those of us in Lawfare talked about a couple different formats, and no one more then Benjamin Wittes himself was more committed to the idea that we should make Rational Security a game show. <laughs> yeah, we, vo we voted against it at the time, but today we're going to make that dream a reality as we bring out what we are calling the Hot Take Takedown Edition, a little version of uh, a little something like along the lines of Shark Tank uh, or not some of your other favorite game shows. Well, we are each going to bring to you a particular hot take, and then the rest of us are going to vote on it along Goldilocks rules, meaning is this take undercooked? Meaning that's not really a hot take, man. That's pretty boring. Is it just right? Meaning, yeah, I would read an article on this. I would maybe listen to a podcast for about an hour every week on this. Or is it too hot? Meaning, no way, man, that's too far out there. We're not going to buy on this. And we will see who comes out the champion with the most Goldilocks just right votes for their hot take this week. 
This reminds me of like, you remember when there used to be that thing called it was it wasn't on Twitter where like it's a hashtag slate pitch. Do you remember when like <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. when people would people would undermine people's hot takes by saying slate pitch? Now there's New York Times pitch bot, which is sort of a similar thing. But like, yeah, well, we don't mention the New York Times pitch bot around me. Why did it pitch at you? No, it has a long-term campaign against me or about me. <laughs> There's a long and sordid backstory. Oh, my God. I didn't know this. Okay, I'll pay more attention. I didn't either, actually. I will just say, as someone who has been accused many times of slate pitching, I have always taken it as a compliment. Bring on the slate pitches. I miss Bring on the, slate, the pitches. slate pitches from Slate. You know, I miss them, personally. <laughs> well, we will be capturing some of that lightning in a bottle today for the hot take takedown. I will be going with the first hot take for you all, uh, having drawn straws prior to the show. For my hot take this week, I want to revisit a topic we've touched on a few times throughout Security 2.0, and that is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Because my hot take is this, that we as Americans, and progressive Americans in particular, are going to live to regret reviving disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. For those who don't know, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is a constitutional amendment adopted, part of a constitutional amendment adopted after the Civil War, which basically says that anyone who held a state or federal or really municipal office, who took a public oath to uphold the Constitution, and then later engaged in insurrection or rebellion, or gave aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, meaning the United States, uh, which we can get back to uh, what that means in a minute, is disqualified from holding any future federal office or employment. And Congress, except where Congress might vote to by two thirds of both chambers to remove their disability, it's particularly timely today because even though I'd already decided on this topic, we actually signed a big opinion in the disqualification decision by of Cui Griffin uh, come out this morning, where the first person to be disqualified since the post Civil War era under this provision, uh, at least uh, of a of a federal office uh, holders by a court. Uh, There's another case in Congress in the 1920s. Cui Griffin, uh, which is I think I'm hoping it right, saying it right. It's the most funny name to say since Zooey Deschanel. But Cui Griffin um, uh, presents an interesting case in how the courts approach this issue, but also highlights, I think, some of the problems that make me so concerned about pro- this provision, which mostly is that it is really hard to distinguish what 14th Amendment Section 3 is applied to in it versus more conventional civil disobedience. The basic facts that you come out through in this, my basic source of my concern is that the definition of insurrection or rebellion the court adopted in this case, and it seems to be inclined to adopt by people advocating for this disqualification, is really broad. Um, it doesn't require an act of violence. It actually is just saying an assemblage that is purposefully avoiding the enforcement of even a federal law or resisting the enforcement of even a single federal law or law with some element of violent force or intimidation by numbers. Again, it doesn't necessarily have to be violent by the finding of the court in this case. In my mind, that encompasses a lot of different sort of group civil disobedience type activities in which you get groups saying, we're going to deliberately disobey a law that we think is unjust. It also, I think it's really problematic that Section 3 extends to people who give aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Um, That provision has been applied to people who do incitement or rebellion under that very broad definition. In some cases, that's been interpreted to mean as little as giving a couple of dollars to somebody, giving support, assisting them some way. There's been some suggestion in some cases it can even apply to cases of somebody just publicly endorsing or giving verbal support. Uh, I find that pretty problematic from a First Amendment standpoint, except, of course, as a constitutional amendment, 14th Amendment supersedes or at least can't be directly constrained by the First Amendment since it's subsequently adopted. And the third problem with this, I think one of the bigger problems, is that this sort of requirement is being enforced in a very decentralized way. 
uh, it doesn't have any clear enforcement mechanism. And instead, what seems to be going down, it's happened historically, is that people are suing in different state courts, potentially local courts, different federal courts, or they're going to legislatures, they're going to board of electors, trying all sorts of institutional routes to try and disqualify people under this provision. And the result is people are taking all sorts of very disaggregated interpretations of this provision. And there's also no clear avenue to establishing precedent by which you can unify those interpretations to mean something perhaps a little safer or less concerning, uh, at least not after a long road of appeals, potentially through a federal court, if we actually get to that point. And all this, in my mind, just amounts to the fact that there's a real concern here if you're talking about other people who might be engaged in acts that fall under this definition. I think it's really hard to draw a line between this definition of insurrection that's being applied in these cases and people who were, for example, remained at Lafayette Square during the Black Lives Matter protest after being, as far as I know, lawfully directed to move by D.C. authorities and decided to stay put. Even though they weren't necessarily engaged in direct violence, although there's some resistance, they still got intimidation by numbers to be able to continue to resist that law. And given that you have all these different municipalities, all these different entities, board of electors that are applying this restriction, I'm really worried that people are going to convince one of or more of these actors to start disqualifying people who happen to be a federal employee or a military officer or somebody else who had made this pledge and then somehow engaged or supported people engaged in sort of protest. And the thing we have now that we didn't have in the 19th century is a real appreciation for the high value that civil disobedience has in a democracy. We've gotten a lot out of civil disobedience over the course of the 20th century. And if you look at the context in which people have said other acts are insurrections in the context of the Insurrection Act, it's often been labor strikes or unions and a lot of uh, stuff involving unions and a lot of other actions that I think we might be a lot more amenable and progressives in particular might see a lot more valid reason for civil disobedience that would be really problematic for people to start invoking this. And this is why I'm really nervous this has been resurrected in its current form. If it were linked only to violent actions, I'd be a lot more comfortable with it. If it was something where Congress played a much more active role in implementing it, as has been suggested in some cases, but isn't currently the case, I'd be a lot more on board with it. But as it is, it makes me really nervous that we're opening a can of worms here that's going to find applied in the future in cases where much more sympathetic people are engaging in civil disobedience of the law uh, and are going to suddenly find themselves disqualified from federal office simply because they happen to be a federal employee or otherwise have issued one of these oaths. Yeah, Scott. So I, I, I'm curious to find out more about what your objection is and specifically what the what the margin on, on which you are concerned about this is. So one possible concern that you articulated is that it's really all about the definition of insurrection. And, and there, it doesn't seem that hard to me to come up with a definition of insurrection, and not just an arbitrary one, but one that I think pretty well tracks the mid-19th century understanding of it, that excludes nonviolent protest. Even nonviolent protest that uses the presence of people as a kind of intimidation tactic, right? You know, people saying, we will not leave unless we're dragged away by the police, or we're going to chain ourselves to all these trees because we don't want them chopped down, right? Uh, that, that sort of thing. And, and in that case, how much are we excluding, you know, how, how much of the problem have we solved? You know, another question might be, right, what do you mean by what do we mean by officer here? Right. And is there a way to limit that um, either through judicial interpretation or through congressional definition to, you know, principal officers or high level officers? Right. Because, of course, it doesn't you know, the, the, third, the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to everybody. It applies to people who took an oath to uphold the Constitution. Right. And then violated it through insurrection. So, you, you know, or, or, or is your concern just fundamental, which is that it is inappropriate in a democracy for these sorts of choices to be taken away from the voters. And 
if the voters want to elect an insurrectionist, well, every democracy gets the people, you know, gets the government it deserves. Yeah, I want to suggest that Scott is being a, a bit of a, a ninny here. So my father was a ninny. His father was a ninny. And I want to apologize for it. There, there's this document. It's called the Constitution. And it says certain things about people who hold office and take an oath to protect the Constitution and then engage in insurrection. Fortunately, in the last 140 years of American history, we haven't had a whole lot of those people to think about. But uh, recently, there's this group of people who took an oath to preserve and protect the Constitution and then, you know, did this January 6th thing. And it seems to me that there's no way to avoid the question of whether what they did amounts to engaging in insurrection or giving aid and comfort to it. And complaining that there's uh, some broad seeming language in the 14th Amendment is no more useful than saying, well, I really wish the Seventh Amendment didn't have that you know, right to jury trial in civil cases. It's there. Uh, we have to figure out what it means and we have to apply it in the cases in which it's relevant and not in the cases that it's not. So I'm, I guess I'm not really sure, Scott, what you're complaining about or what you're suggesting. Are you complaining that the uh, drafters of the 14th Amendment included this? Are you complaining that we have to figure out now how to apply it to modern circumstances? Or are you suggesting that we have like a sort of, you know, Scott gets to decide which parts of the Constitution we ignore? All hail King Scott. The ninny, the great ninny. I will, I, will con- <laughs> I will continue the pile on here. Um, so look, I think that, you know, uh, to, to paraphrase a famous line, you go to war with the constitution you have, right? Um, I, I do think that there's an element of, of this where we have to consider the context in which this was written. So since you mentioned civil disobedience, um, I looked it up, Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau, published in 1849. Uh, and he was talking about uh, refusing to pay his taxes because of his opposition to the Mexican-American War and to slaveholding. And there are plenty of examples of civil disobedience being used by abolitionists um, in the run-up to the Civil War. And so I do think that that the is worth... The originalist case for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. By I mean, that, right. <laughs> exactly. But, but in all seriousness, I do think that, you know... I can understand why the people who wrote that amendment may not have felt the need to clarify specifically the contours of what constituted an insurrection because they just had one. And it seems under those circumstances quite obvious what it means. And I do think there is a certain power in saying, you know, that the Civil War was one example. January 6th is another. Those are obviously completely different in degree and in kind than anything else that has happened. Um, and we should acknowledge that and use the tools that are in the box to address it. And once you get to the point where you're arguing, you know, what's the difference between uh, protesters on Lafayette Square and January 6th, the rot has gone so deep that I'm not sure that, you know, holding back on using Section 3 is going to do much help. 
I will say one thing in, in I'm not sure Scott's defense, but I, I do think it is an important implication of, of Scott's point, though, and I think this is true, that you cannot, you, you know, if you're going to advocate for the use of Section 3, you have to then be willing to con- consider that you can do insurrection for good causes, and that should also be disqualifier for Section 3. Right, so this is a little bit like the argument about what seditious conspiracy meant back in the fall of 2000, when when DOJ sent out that infamous memo to prosecutors saying, "Hey, all these Black Lives Matter protesters, where it is appropriate, consider using seditious conspiracy." And people freaked out, and a lot of that freak out was appropriate. But there is a core of truth there, right? Which is, you know, if you're going to use Section Three for you know anti-democratic forces from the right, you have to be willing to consider the possibility. Right, that if you have violence, but in favor of a cause you think you know is on the right side of history, that also counts, um, and that is an implication, and you know maybe an unattractive one of the use of Section Three, and maybe that's part of what Scott is getting at. Well, right. I mean, if you're as unless you're a pacifist, you're implicitly acknowledging that violence is justified in some circumstances. It's just a question of where that horizon is. I'm going to speak, I'll speak in Scott's defense because I feel like maybe you're touching on something that I think about when I think about the impeachment process. And it's like, we have this tool in the constitution that, and I agree with Quinta, like you should be able to say January 6th is in the spirit of insurrection as the civil war was like, I mean, I think we should be able to say that at least it's, it's, it's an it's an argument we should, we can make, but I just don't know if our current society is like, prepared to use these tools when they are obviously available. And it's kind of like, you know, this is the why we can't have nice things or like, you know, we're too immature to play with these tools. So I think that in that sense, I could see people coming to regret having this mechanism at their disposal because it could be abused and and and, and, and misapplied. So if, if, if your anxiety is that you're afraid that people are going to start slapping people around with Section 3 of the amendment and calling all kinds of things insurrection, I can I have some sympathy to that because I think that just as a society we're very immature in how we use these constitutional mechanisms and they've become to use the word that gets overused weaponized. I would just like to say for listeners who don't who don't see what we see um Scott was uh, in the corner weeping and then when uh when Shane defended him he kind of perked back up and Pumping now he's just crying lightly. Air. Now I'm crying with joy. Exactly. Because Shane has finally come to my defense. I will say in regard to closing comments is that, Alan, I 100% agree. It'd be great if we could get a narrower definition of insurrection or officer, but they're not very narrow as interpreted by the courts or as used by the advocates of this particular disqualification. They're actually really quite broad, uh, the way the experts are thinking of actually expressly so by design. And again, I, I think that's part of the problem here. In terms of what you could do, Ben, I actually do think there's a problem when you're going to start like, normalizing this sort of litigation. Like, I think that's part of the concern is saying, yeah, we can start bringing this forward. But beyond that, like, there's things that Congress could do to restrict this. You know, they could start, they can act with two thirds majority of both chambers, something that limits and takes away the disqualification in substantial numbers um, if they wanted to. And I think at some point, if it ends up getting abused a lot, it might be really warranted. Quinta, your point's taken. But uh, in regards to, uh, you know, this might be a sign of rot. But again, to use this effectively, like, you actually just have to convince, like, a local judge or a board of electors to potentially really interfere in an area where exactly where you want people who have marginalized social views most able to actually get into the electoral system. They're most at risk of being kicked out as an insulated minority. I mean, that's really the concern here, I think. But Shane, thank you. 
you're wise as always, and you're very handsome. And I appreciate your <laughs> inclusions as always. Checks in the mail. I think that brings us to the end of our first round. So now, with much aplomb, we will go to the vote. I have a question. Shoot. In determining whether or not a take is too hot, is the question like, do I personally think that you are wrong? Or like if the New York Times opinion section were to run an op-ed with this take, would it get mega ratioed on Twitter? Like what is the what is the scale here? Oh, I think it's personal. No, I think it's personal. I think each of us has to respond with like, this is batshit crazy. This is a little crazy, but in a fun way that I enjoyed. Or like, this is just lame, man. Come on, try harder. Would you retweet this argument? I think it's yes, personal. I think that's it. Like Shark Tank, would you invest? Yeah. RT's exclamation mark equal sign agree. But (laughs) would you retweet this argument for the sake of it being interesting? That is is the answer for just right. Too hot means I'm not going to retweet this madness. And too cool means why would I retweet this madness? Everybody already knows this. All right. Alan, you're first. All right. So I, I, first of all, I just want to say, you know, I love you. But I'm going to vote a undercooked for this one. Uh, I think I think that, you know, I think that like, yeah, you point out a possible bad thing, but you know, most constitutional provisions have bad things. And I, I don't know. It didn't, get, it didn't get my blood pumping. I did not see that one coming. Uh, ben, <laughs> why don't we go with you next? This one's too hot. It is a alarmed, one might say, hysterical take on something that has not happened yet. And probably will never happen. Because why would we prepare for things that haven't happened yet or worry about them? The ultimate lesson of the last several years. And what he proposes to hedge against this hypothetical problem is a special bill to exempt Marjorie Taylor Greene from the law. Or everyone but Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs) And I don't see that as, it strikes me as the wrong response to a non-problem. Jane, how do you how do you roll? Uh, I'm going to say I think this is just right. I was prepared initially to think that this was undercooked, but then as I listened to the arguments, um, you know, I thought no, I think Scott has a point. Um, also, I like to disagree with Ben. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to say this is a Goldilocks. This is a cake that is ready to be pulled from the oven, frosted, sold with scotch, you know, for some amount of money. Yes, I like it. I would eat this. Quinta, you are the tiebreaker in a three-way split. It's too hot. Too hot, man. This is the, I'm a liberal, Quinta period. No, no, no. You got to let me finish. This is New, New York Times opinion section. I'm a liberal, period. Here's why it's dangerous to use the 14th Amendment against Trump, <laughs> period. <laughs> yeah, New York Times. I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. Well, we have a finding of too hot on this one, but... With that, let's go to our second hot take. Shane, you are up. What do you have us for us today? Wait, before Shane goes, we got to talk about the problem of log rolling and revenge here. Oh my because... God, we do not have time to talk about the problem of log rolling and revenge. <laughs> All right. I just want to say Shane just bought himself a vote and Quinta and I just bought ourselves a negative vote. So that seems to me the later you go, the more you're the more you're, you've cooked in your, your, your vote here. I mean, what are you going to do? Like use the 14th Amendment against me next? Exactly. <laughs> we have these rules. They're there for a reason. So it's too bad that they're dangerous. You got to just go with them. This liberalism, folks. Ay, ay, ay. 
Uh, so my take is so hot, it will show up on the FLIR camera of an F-18. All right. So I think that the next year or so is going to see a, I don't know if I want to use the word explosion. That might be a little intense and like get me a little bit too spicy. But listeners will know that I have been closely following the issue of unidentified aerial phenomena, aka UFO, which I prefer to say, although UAP is probably the better better acronym, uh, and how the intelligence community and the military have been much more public about documenting sightings, trying to investigate them, getting to the bottom of them, and treating them as nationals, potential national security threats, which arguably they are, considering many of these unidentified craft have been found in the vicinity of U.S. aircraft and military installations and naval groups, etc. So I think that there's been a kind of there's an evolution in the way the public is thinking about this. <clears throat> and while we all talk about UAPs, and I'm first among people who do this and kind of giggle and think aliens, because, I mean, I desperately want these to be aliens. I've laid my cards on the table before about this. I'm very transparent. I think that there's been a real change in the way that the public has been talking about this, and particularly that the government has been talking about this. Two data points on that. Over this past summer, you had two very senior, very sober uh, senior Pentagon officials testify before Congress about UAPs, and in one case, even playing a video of a UAP that was captured by a fighter plane's cockpit, uh, by, a, by a camera on a plane. And uh, this official told lawmakers, I don't know what this is. We do not know what this is, but there is something that appears to be flying past this very sophisticated airplane. And then, of course, the summer before that, you had the ODNI come out with this report on a number of different sightings and cases that it investigated and kind of came up with these categories of what these could plausibly be. The upshot of which seems to be that in some of these cases, these do not appear to be U.S. aircraft and they don't appear to be foreign government aircraft. Although in some cases, there probably is evidence that some of these very strange sightings are, in fact, things like drones or, or other craft operated by foreign governments. So the, the whole tenor of the conversation around this has changed. That's the first part. The second part is that there is clearly more information <clears throat> that has not been made public. Um, I do not mean to say that I think that, you know, the U.S. government has an alien someplace in the basement of the CIA. Awesome, though, that would be. But, you know, there clearly is more information. You, If you look carefully in legislation that's being drafted, doing things like directing reviews of previous sightings going back to the 1940s, like Congress is both deeply interested in the subject and has reason to believe that there is more information to bear on the question of what the hell are these things. Um, so I think that not that we're necessarily going to get an answer to that, and there probably is not one single answer to this, but I think that we are in a golden age of information about UAPs and that the discussion around it <clears throat> has now matured to the point where we can kind of talk about it without people thinking that you're a kook or you're a nut or you're some kind of crank. When you have people as senior as guys like Ron Moultrie, the Undersecretary of Defense for Security and Intelligence, who is a deeply serious person, um, testifying about this in Congress and doing it with a straight face uh, and Congress passing laws and even whistleblower protection statutes uh, around this issue. I think the next year is going to be a big one for this. And, you know, hopefully we'll get some answers. But I think that the the tenor of the conversation has changed. And I'm just going to predict I think there will be new, pretty surprising revelations that come out about what these things are and about what the government knows about what they are. Or might be or might be. 
I'm ready to vote. Question. Mm. Is the the hot take here that we're going to learn some stuff or that there's going to be a lot of conversations about UAPs? What What's the distill the hot take to a sentence? I think we are going to learn significant new information about what UAPs might be. But it's not part of the take what that new information is going to be. You're not saying there are going to be little green guys and you're not saying it's actually Chinese hypersonic drones that can, you know, go in a thousand different directions because they've got super mega thrusters on the on the on undercarriage. Like, I, like, I think the problem, Shane, is I think I think that unless you commit to it being aliens, it's by definition undercooked. I think you have to go for yeah. it. Just go for it. It's going to be alien. All right, so here's my take. Then here's my take. Significant new information is going to be made public uh, that is going to raise serious questions about whether or not these craft are not made by human beings. There we go. That's the take. That's it. That's the take. That's my take. Not saying it's aliens, but it wasn't made by people. But it's going to raise some real questions. You're not saying it's not aliens. Not saying it's not. Birds. (laughs) Not real, man. And bats. (laughs) <laughs> the pterodactyl did not go extinct. The thing that blows me away is that on the one hand, this should by definition be the most batshit take possible because it involves aliens. And yet it's like actually very plausible. I mean, totally. it's just amazing to me that that this is like obviously a Goldilocks take and it involves aliens. It just, it blows my mind. I mean, I really think, I mean, not, I mean not, again, not to say that it's aliens, even though, you know, I want it to be aliens. But to Alan's point, I mean, there is... We kind of dismiss this idea out of hand because we think of all the reasons why it couldn't be extraterrestrial. There are plenty of good arguments for exactly why it could be extraterrestrial in nature. It sounds kooky and it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it because there's a stigma attached to it. And to be clear, there's no definitive evidence of this, obviously. But yeah, of course it could be aliens. I mean, does anybody genuinely believe that that there are no other intelligent forms of life in the fucking universe? I mean, okay, no I one have, believes I have that. a question. I have a question. I'm not I'm not going to say I believe that, but I will point to the Fermi paradox. But my question is oh, that. Okay, as... we can go there. Where are they? <laughs> Maybe they're already here, Quinta. Oh <laughs> they're <my God>. here. <laughs> they're, they're recording this podcast. Um, in all seriousness, okay. As with the well-known Stannis Lelum science fiction novel, Solaris, I have never understood why people think that if extraterrestrial life exists and is intelligent, we would be able to recognize it, communicate with it, understand it in any way whatsoever, right? This is the carbon chauvinism argument. But genuinely, like there's, what if it's just microbes? What if it's something that you can't possibly conceptualize because it comes, it's, you know, made out of silicon and has a completely different understanding of the universe, which I think in some ways is actually a little more as existentially frightening because it's not, why are we alone? It's what if there's something else out there and are, you know, we're so fundamentally locked into our, our own psyches. What is it like to be a bat, et cetera, that you can't have any communication with it? I will say I worry, this might be a little bit of a cool take for the reason that we had this big revelation this year where we saw the federal government come out and say, oh, we don't know what these things are. Everybody always assumed there's some like classified report where they were like, oh, yeah, we've got the bodies of aliens floating in formaldehyde in Area 51. And instead now we have pretty good reason to believe, no, even the guys who really know stuff that's going on have no idea what this is. 
and no one cared. <laughs> like people's expectations are just ramped up way too high. And I feel like if this year's revelation didn't really like tip tip the jar in a, some sort of registration of like, oh, there's really might be something out there. I feel like I don't know what will unless there's like a video that's so much more compelling than what we've seen so far. Can I can I offer one counterpoint to that in my defense? They were only commenting on the cases that have you have seen or have been declassified. Okay, but if if there were a report about aliens, I feel like Trump would have tweeted about it. That is the other thing. Or he has it in Mar-a-Lago. Or now somebody else, the special master has it. The special master is the alien. My friend Julian Barnes and his colleagues at the Times had a good piece the other day about the kinds of intel that Trump was interested in. And they said, apparently, UFOs was not on the list. Ugh. Lack of imagination. Because he is a UFO. <laughs> Guys, everyone's no, a UFO. That explains everything. No, it's because he knows he can't influence them. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're made out of silicon and they have multiple dimensions. Alpha Centauri, far too far away to build a condo. No one will go there. It's just too complicated. Right. I'm ca- I'm calling the vote on this one for the sake of time. Uh, I think we got Shane. Any last last re- responses or comments? Uh, nanu, 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 nanu. <laughs> Quinta, how do you how vote thee? Just right. I'm not sure I'd buy it, but I would retweet it. Alan, how vote thee? Evergreen, just right. Shane and aliens. Ugh, I love Shane and aliens, and Shane is so handsome and so generous today. But I fear <laughs> I must vote too cool because so much for logger. I I fear this Damn. is just just not quite sizzling with enough alien energy n- enough yet. I'm out ben, of will you will you give Shane his first the first victory, or or uh, how how are you voting on this one? I'm going to uh, uh, also vote just right. Yeah, I was yeah. I was going to vote seriously undercooked, but I liked uh, when I forced uh, forced the clarification of what the uh, hot take was. I thought the disclosure was uh was very promising and uh articulated it well so i like this hot take a lot i'm glad you forced me to take a stand one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. 
and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, we have our first just right winner of the competition, but let's see who might be able to top his three just right votes to take the crown. Next up, we have Quinta Jurassic. What is your hot take for the hot take takedown? All right, folks, I am going to argue that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, 
uh, often described as the American Orban, um, as in Victor, as in the president of Hungary, uh, is not as dangerous to American democracy as Donald Trump. So I got to set this up a little bit. Um, There have been a lot of conversations around whether or not DeSantis is Trump's natural successor. DeSantis is clearly setting himself up in that role. Uh, He is certainly embracing the Trumpist kind of style of politics. He's, among other things, uh, gone after people whom his own state allowed uh, to register to vote after felony convictions and had them arrested. And I think what's becoming a scandal in Florida, he has promoted some really unbelievably vicious and brutal and awful anti-gay and anti-trans legislation, which is now law in Florida. Um, And he is often the second choice if you ask Republican voters who they would like to vote for in 2024. So the question is, is then, you know, should we understand DeSantis as a comparable threat to democracy? I think for a long time, there was a kind of uh, settle down child uh, wisdom on the anti, really more the anti-anti-Trump right, that DeSantis was kind of the the smart person's Trump, that he was Trump without the tweets, without the crazy, right? As DeSantis has become progressively more right, and I would argue authoritarian in his approach to wielding power, there's been some serious alarm Uh including from, uh, among other people, one Alan Rosenstein, about this turn in DeSantis's politics and whether, you know, he really is an improvement or whether he represents just as much of a threat. I would like to argue that I do not think, I think that a DeSantis presidency would be extremely bad for basically all of the reasons that I've just laid out. But I don't think that he is as much of a threat to American democracy as a second Trump term would be. Um, I think he is smarter. I think in many ways he is a cannier politician. And that is actually exactly why I don't think he has the demonic magic that Trump has, because he is too calculating. Um, He can see which way the wind is blowing and he goes in that direction. And I think that a lot of Trump's appeal to the base and therefore his political power was the fact that like he would just do whatever including often things that were not in his interest in any way the honey badger of american politics kind of um but it redounded to his benefit because it it helped create this persona of trump as someone who was essentially authentic even in how erratic he was especially in how erratic he was and i think that there's been a big argument about whether trumpism is fascism or quasi-fascism maybe that should have been my hot take but i do think that the element of fascism that is sort of the the mythical connection of the leader with the volk uh that trump can channel that in a way that DeSantis as like fundamentally just kind of a calculating and awkward dude can't do. And so will I do think that he could be extraordinarily dangerous when in power? I don't think he has the kind of chaotic evil factor that leads me to really, really fear for American democracy under a DeSantis presidency, which doesn't mean I wouldn't fear, to be clear. Yes, I, I, I think this is a just right take. I'm just going to go ahead and say my vote now. Um, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about this, particularly given that as a journalist, you know, I'm always aware of how we are all, you know, calibrating and contextualizing candidates or issues or you know, anything that happens in the news. And there is a temptation, I think, given 
the way that Donald Trump behaved while he was in office and given the hold that he appears to have over the party to presume that the next person who, you know, someone who he endorsed, or even though like he and DeSantis obviously have a different kind of tense, more tense relationship, but that, that, that the way that you get ahead as a Republican is to just be like Trump. And what I've come to conclude is that Trump is just unique in so many ways. And, and I think kind of Quinta and then Ben with the honey badger comment really gets at the core of it, which is that he's also, you know, uniquely foolish and reckless and uniquely narcissistic and, and kind of not giving a rat's ass about the kind of conventional politics that I think someone like Rick DeSantis is far more attuned to and more sensitive to. I mean, Donald Trump is not really a politician, right? Rick DeSantis is a politician. Um, And while he did get to prominence by in many ways mimicking Donald Trump, that doesn't mean that he would govern like him. Uh, I I think, in fact, there's a lot uh, in the way that Donald Trump governed, you know, that would recommend not repeating what he'd done. He was impeached twice. Uh, he was voted out of office I and mean, he lost. He lost. Uh, he helped lose the Senate for his party. He helped lose the House for his party in 2018. So I think while rhetorically and sort of presentationally, it might work for DeSantis to sort of be Trump-like, I think there's a lot of good reasons to think that he will not govern like that and that that no, you know, sane Republican would. So it's funny, Shane, because you you were agreeing with Quinta, but I think you actually made a lot of the points against Quinta's position, right? Which is, for example, that DeSantis probably wouldn't, for example, go and campaign against his party in a battleground state and therefore help his party, right? Uh, You know, I, I, I think this is just another way of pointing out that I think competence is underrated as a form of democratic decline, you know, and I, I, I think that what what concerns me is, and why I think I'm, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go with underbaked on this one, um, or maybe overbaked. I don't know. I, 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 I want to. Yeah, I wouldn't it be too the, hot? Maybe, maybe too hot. Maybe too hot. But it's, it's, it's too hot because you're making Desantis too cold or something. I don't know. You're serving Desantis on a dish served cold. <laughs> is, is that I, I think a lot of the stuff that Trump you know, tried to do in this with this stupid chaos energy, like was it Section F? Was that what it was called? Just an attempt to kind of gut like the higher civil service. That's exactly the sort of thing that a DeSantis government could actually do, you know, correctly, right? Um, and actually, uh, assuming that, you know, they could come up with some legal justification for it, make it stick. Or for example, you know, actually do something like a travel ban, but stop constantly undercutting it or do something you know, in public or something like the census thing on the, uh, the, uh, the citizenship question on, on the census, right? And, and relatedly, and here I think where Quinta's question, I think is a, a little, is I think a little bit stacking the deck. Um, it assumes that we're asking Trump versus DeSantis as presidents, discounting the fact that Trump is actually a very bad politician, um, and is uniquely good, not just at rallying his base, but at pissing everyone else off. Whereas I think DeSantis could both get elected and then get reelected. So I, this is why I fundamentally disagree. And I think DeSantis is very scary. I will just add to that. I, I fear that I am blind blinded by the heat being cast off by the super, super nuclear hot take that appears to boil down mostly to demonic magic, which I like. It's a big selling point for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I fear, I fear the Trump is only good because he's dumb thesis it lacks more data points. <laughs> so I'm not quite. I'm there. That is not what I'm arguing. All right. I, in the spirit of Judge Eileen Cannon, 
I want to lay out for you how I am inclined to vote and give you the opportunity to talk me out of it, uh, which is I am inclined to vote uh, that this is undercooked for the following reason, um, but I'm not committed to it. And so talk me out of it. But it seems to me your point is obviously correct. And it's so obviously correct that it's it's a little bit, it's it's less than a hot take. And here is the mathematical proof that your point is obviously correct. In one case, Donald Trump, we have a, a certain and demonstrated uh, chaotic energy um, authoritarian. In the other case, DeSantis, we have indicators that he may be, and certainly may aspire to be, a chaotic uh, energy, uh, uh, negative energy um, authoritarian. But because he's never demonstrated it, we don't really know. And so you have to discount the expected value is is somewhat discounted off of Trump. Therefore, uh, if you were going to, uh, on the one hand, you're offered the sure thing, a kind of would-be Mussolini. And on the other hand, you're offered a very likely um, and so obviously the expected value of the second is lower than the first. Therefore, Quinta is so obviously right that it's not actually that interesting a take. And so I want you to, and, and I, I showed my bona fides on this with Shane. I gave him a chance to talk me into it and he did. So talk me into why this isn't like a duh point. Okay, two points. First off, it's clearly not obvious because both Alan and Scott, uh, so two fifths of the people on this podcast thought that it Wait was a minute. too hot. Just, just, just because Alan and Scott can't recognize the <laughs> obvious truth doesn't mean something is the obvious truth. The two of us have never been wrong about the same thing we're united in our opinions. That's certainly true. Yeah, maybe we're also just bad at math. Second off, I think that it's a more complicated question. It's not, does Ron DeSantis have the same demonic chaos energy as Donald Trump? It's, does his order Muppet villainy outrank Donald Trump's chaos Muppet villainy? Ooh, that's... Does his beaker beat his animal, is what you're saying? That's a much better, that's a much better argument than the first one, particularly when supplemented by Scott's explication of the beaker versus animal uh, energy. All right. So so walk me through that a little bit. What's the danger of beaker that animal does not pose? Well, I think I think we're running out of time. So I will I will just say extremely quickly, I do think that having someone who is willing to do just like incredibly wild stuff can put you in dangerous territory in a way that somebody who you know, pays attention to what people think and what people want you to do fundamentally cannot. And I also think that that kind of calculation undercuts the sort of, you know, mythical tether between the charismatic leader and his people, which is part of what is so fundamentally dangerous about Trump. All right, it is time to vote. I am calling it now. Alan, how do you vote on this on this hot take? So first of all, I just want to say ben, Ben's Ben's forcing us to all like really figure out our our takes is, is very useful. So I appreciate the beaker versus animal uh, uh, formulation Thank of the you. take. I, you know, it was very good. It was very good. Uh, that it, it was you. Um, you did such a good job, Scott. Um, I think this is too spicy. I think it's too spicy. Muy caliente, too spicy. Ben, how do you vote? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna give Quinta the just right on this. I think I think it's a, a legit a legit take, and I think the the ultimate answer to my question is that a lot of people don't seem to be able to distinguish between DeSantis and Trump. And uh, uh, the point that DeSantis is just your garden variety authoritarian, whereas Trump is a, your garden variety authoritarian with a certain je ne sais quoi actually is important. Uh, I, I, I pre-voted. I voted early. Yes, just right. Muy okay. bien. We have a just right, pretty successful. We have a just right, a second one from Quinta, but not to the margins of Shane. So Shane remains the leader. Wait a minute. How did you vote, Scott? To Boy Caliente. Too Caliente. Oh, 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 sorry. Too I caliente. thought you. Boy Caliente is just very hot. I thought you were summarizing Alan's vote. I see. Okay. All right. 11% of the world's landmass is a single country. And it is Russia. And um, my uh, hot take, if you determine it to be a hot take, is that this is a country in terminal decline in a fashion that is extremely dangerous for the rest of the world. One element of which is the invasion of Ukraine. But we are focusing on the invasion of Ukraine at the uh, risk of missing the, and rightly so, we are focusing on Ukraine, but we are missing the implosion of Russia as a country. So this was a country that uh, before the breakup of the Soviet Union was roughly the same size as the United States in terms of population. It is now, I think, roughly the same size as Pakistan in terms of population. I may be within a certain margin of error off on that. It is uh, aging. Uh, it is incredibly corrupt. It is incapable of waging war effectively against a country, a very small uh, percentage uh, its size. Sorry, Alan informs me that Pakistan is much larger in population than Russia, actually. Um, and it is full of incredibly bellicose rhetoric uh, at, from the highest levels of government against essentially the, the entire democratic world. And I want to submit that this is, everybody is focused on the Ukraine conflict. And apart from that, uh, the rise of China. And I want to submit that the decline of Russia as a state is one of the fundamental uh, security problems of the next uh, 30 years, that whether we are able to, whether it is able to decline somewhat gracefully or whether it declines uh, at the extreme end in a catastrophic fashion. Remember, it is the largest nuclear power in the world. It occupies an enormous amount of space. It has a, a immense number of countries that it borders and can threaten from the Pacific, uh, where it is constantly in tension with Japan to Eastern Europe. And it has uh, enormous influence uh, in the Arctic, which is an increasingly uh, exposed region as a result of climate change. Uh, and I think we are not paying enough attention to the 
security threats associated with Russia's decline, uh, spending as much energy as we are on the security threats associated with China's rise. Ben, let me let me let me turn the Wittis the Wittis technique back on you. I want to sharpen this this hot take because I feel like if it's just Russia's in decline and it's dangerous, that's just like too underbaked. But it sounds like maybe the hot take you're making, and I think this is worth debating, is the decline of Russia is the preeminent maybe after climate change, right? But like is the preeminent geopolitical danger of the next twenty years? Are you willing to make that claim? Well, I would say it's one of them. And mm, so, commit, commit to the bit. So no, no, no. I, I, I want to be intellectually honest here. If we say the preeminent, then we have to compare it against, you know, China being willing to invade Taiwan. We have to, and I don't, I don't want to do that analysis because I actually don't think it's doable. But here's what I will say to sharpen my, my, the bit. Russia's decline is inexorable and irreversible. It is like what happens when a certain tipping point is reached in the climate change arena. And we have gone past that point. The, they had a chance in the break after the breakup of the Soviet Union to be a, a significant, to rebuild themselves as a significant world player as a nation state kind of along the China model. They didn't do that. They rebuilt themselves as a gas station uh, with a military. And uh, at this point, we are past the point at which there is a, uh, a graceful revival available. And so we're in the point where the glacier is moving downhill faster than can be controlled. And uh, we are into the uh, the challenge of managing Russia's collapse. That's the hard version of the thesis that I'm advancing. I don't know if this will change my vote, but what is your thought on whether or not Russia can be saved from itself, whether it's through a Navalny or some kind of, you know, united democratic movement that, you know, either forces Putin out or throws him out or votes him out and essentially, you know, people who do want to see Russia succeed more in a kind of liberal model come to power and start correcting these kinds of problems uh, and, and save the country from ruin. So I do think that there is, I, I never want to count out democratic movements and reformist movements in any country. I, I just have a philosophical objection to doing that. We're so bad at predicting when those movements are going to be successful that I'm never going to be the person who says there's no chance for the Navalny movement. But what I will say is the Navalny movement, you know, any movement that comes to power in Russia has to account for this essentially ungovernable project that forced itself to be governable by being essentially imperial in quality. It's the last empire in the world um, in the true traditional sense of empire. That is a resource exploitation-based domination of colonial colonized peoples. And uh, the, the challenge of reversing that would be beyond what I think is uh, reasonable to expect of basic of, of, of movements that actually can govern. So I'm very skeptical of the ability of a Navalny-like movement 
to govern effectively if if it ever came to power. Hence the point about inexorability. So I will weigh in briefly to hear in favor of a just right ruling bordering on a little undercooked. It's a little chilled. And it's not a dish that's supposed to be served chilled. But I have to say, I think this is a well-timed thing because while I'm not sure there's a totally novel thesis among IR theorists or people who study Russia or people who study various aspects of policy in this area, it's a lesson that seems to be completely lost on policymakers who intently want to be constantly ratcheting up pressure on Russia in the favor of short-term policy gains at a risk of mass destabilization with big consequences that is probably on the horizon anyway, and if anything, being escalated by those measures um, and warrant some consideration. So I'll, I'll throw that in there as a, as a hint of where I am leaning on this vote. I feel like, like this is like somehow both too hot and too cold, but it's definitely not just right. I don't know where that, that leaves me. On the too hot end, I don't believe in inexorable anything when it comes to human affairs, right? I mean, this isn't like a glacier moving down a hill. There are a million moving pieces. It's a country of 140 million people. There's, you know, many weird things have happened in the world. That that seems like it's going way too far for me, unless we're going to... Let's go with the sci-fi metaphors. This is like Hari Seldon style, like laws of, of human affairs, bring out the Hegel, right? I just, I don't see it. Some dialectical materialism for you. Oh, hell yes. Um, and then on the other side, I guess I don't, like, decline from what? Is I guess is my question. Like it's it's already, of course, it's in it's in bad shape. It's in it's been in bad shape since the '90s. Like decline toward the '90s, decline from where it was before the USSR fell. That that's the part that feels sort of so obvious as to be undercooked to me. Okay, so let me address both of those. Um, so first of all, I don't think that inexorability is a matter of the laws of physics or glaciers or or any of that. I do think there are certain projects that in the human sphere are impossible. And one of them may be governing Russia without a level of violence that the world will not tolerate anymore and that actually the Russian people won't tolerate. And so, you know, when when you think about how you govern a space that big centrally, the answer is you use the threat of violence against people at the periphery who may not tolerate or not accept the will. And uh, right now, it's not the people at the periphery are not accepting that and they're not. And that's what you see in Ukraine. And that's actually what you see uh, in Georgia and in, you know, in, in other places as well. The more failure that you have, the less governable the place becomes. There is such a thing as a, as a country that's just too, too big, too, too ungovernable. And the traditional solutions to that, which is to kill huge numbers of people, don't really work that well anymore. Uh, on the too obvious to uh, decline from what, the question is, can it sustain its current level of governance centrality and exertion of power relative to its neighbors? And I think the answer is it can't. And once you say that, then the question is, can it sustain central governance at all? And that's actually my concern about it, that that you really are approaching the point of implosion. All right. Time for the vote. 
Alan, how do you vote? So I, I really, I wanted to give you, Ben, the opportunity to commit to the bit fully and get it just right for me. But I think, I think this is undercooked. I think it's just a little too obvious that Russia is in decline and that decline poses strategic challenges. And I think if you were willing to say it's the biggest strategic challenge, it's a bigger deal than if China invades Taiwan, because I think that is actually defensible uh, and provocative uh, answer, I, I would have given you the just right, but it's, it's a little too cold for me. I'm sorry, my friend. I'm, I've come down on that side as well. I think you needed to leave it in the oven a little longer. I will stick with tepid, but just right for my mellow, mellow taste and sensitive buds. Shane, how about you? Uh, I am inclined to vote uh, <clears throat> undercooked in part because uh, I think that uh, the decline of Russia is actually the single greatest geostrategic threat uh, currently facing us. I would put it ahead of climate change and ahead of China. I wish that Ben had poured that poured that sweet, sweet hot sauce on top of it. But because I have so much sympathy to his argument and because he voted for me, I'm going to say just right. What? Can I just say, it is the most surprising thing about all of this is that Ben Wittes, like the, yes! the, the chaos Muppet of Lawfare, didn't get a single too spicy. I'm yeah, shocked. I just want to say, I got too hot and Ben got too cold. Are you kidding me? Everything's upside down. The world turned upside down. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to my very lukewarm leftovers when I think about this topic later, Ben. But for the <laughs> moment, congratulations on getting our third just right, if I'm remembering correctly, but still not rivalry, Shane's three just right votes. So he remains in the lead. Alan, you are the last person with the opportunity to dethrone him. Give us your hot take. I am I am now coming in worried that this that this is also a very tepid take. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to sh- preemptively sharpen it. Okay, so so the take is that recent improvements among the Republican Party with traditional Democratic voters, specifically minority voters, especially Hispanic voters, but also actually Black and Asian voters, is not just a blip. It is the future of the Republican Party. And here's the the hot take. It is not just a good thing, something that everyone, whether you're Republican or a Democrat, should support, um, even if it leads to some Democratic losses. But it's actually the only thing that can save American democracy in the next 20 years. And that ultimately, just as stable mid 20th century democracy was, you know, driven by a kind of white ethnic middle of the road consensus that was good for stability, but actually quite bad for, for example, you know, racial minorities and civil rights, the future of or the only future stable American society is one that is basically built around socially conservative well, what is currently called minority minority voters, though in the future those those racial labels may not actually make a lot of sense, and that that's good because in order to have a good democracy, you have to have a stable democracy. But it's probably going to sell out, you know, some groups who are generally not not uh, viewed favorably by uh, social conservatives. That's my hot take. Okay, I have questions. So first off. Do you feel that the data on this is strong enough to support this level of hot take? Because I, I readers or listeners, we, we were given hints of each other's takes ahead of time. Uh, and I, I did some reading and it does seem like there were a bunch of stories written immediately after the 2020 election about Trump pulling more from Latino and Black men, primarily, um, mostly Latino men. And then since then, in 2022, there's been a lot of reporting of people basically saying, like, 
well, it seems like there was some movement. We don't really know more. There was a lot of movement among uh, Tejanos, for example, maybe not so much in other Latino communities. It's not really clear how much of a swing it is or why it happened or if it will persist. Like, do you feel that the data is strong here? I'm not trying to catch you out. I'm, this is a genuine question. Yeah. So, so part part of part of what makes this take spicy, uh, or hopefully spicy enough, is the um, lack is, of evidence. No, is that I, I'm leaning a little <laughs> bit forward on my on my data skis, as as it were. Um, you know, obviously, this is a re- this is a fairly recent development, and this could be noise. Um, you know, I, I did a little bit of research, not too much research before this. This is rational security, after all. Um, but there's some good uh, Harry Enten analyses from CNN that we'll that we'll link to that make me think, and he's a pretty sophisticated, I think, data analyst. So he seems to think this is a real pattern. And it's not also just about race, right? You know, you are right that some of the movement of minority support for Republicans comes from men. There's actually less of a gender gap than you would think. Um, Obviously, Dobbs has changed that somewhat. But, you know, again, there are plenty of there are plenty of socially conservative women out there. Uh, You know, the 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 country remains exceptionally polarized, but that polarization is much more along educational and urban rural divides. And although polarization is not a good thing generally, the reason I think that my story is fundamentally an optimistic one is that that level of polarization to me is much less dangerous than polarization among demographic boundaries, especially race, which is the like original sin and core fragility of American society for obvious reasons. I will say you had me at the diversification of the American electorate is a good thing. I'm with you. And maybe a saving grace of our American democracy moving forward. 100% agree. I 100% with you with the idea that that growing electorate and diversifying electorate needs to be competitive between the two parties to have a healthy democracy. 100% agree with you there. It is when you made the leap to say that this particular set of that population voting for this party is there that you jumped into the God, I want to place an op-ed so bad zone. That is the classic (laughs) definition of the two hot. This is a nuclear hot take. <laughs> that's that's actually that's literally it. I'm a Democrat to save democracy. Latinos should vote for Republicans. There you I'm go. Trying, I'm trying so hard. I am like the worst sort of false equivalents. I want to be both. I'm the worst both sides are in the world. <laughs> okay, so along similar lines, I want to ask you uh, why you think this is the only thing that can save American democracy particularly given your acknowledgement that the data supporting it uh, is, shall we say, preliminary, is your hot take really that the only thing that can save American democracy is if Harry Enten is right? I mean, honestly, no, I'm I'm going I'm to double down on this, right? I think that there is nothing more dangerous than a ethnic group whose dominance is shrinking in a society. Therefore, it feels itself to be threatened, but it's still the plurality. And you voted against me as ch- uh, on <laughs> Russia? Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, I voted against you on Russia because your take wasn't spicy enough. I'm trying to sp- spice up my take. I-, I think that there's nothing, nothing more dangerous than if the Republican Party becomes purely the party of white revanchism. That scares me more than anything else. And the only way that I see that broken is if the Republican Party gets enough support among, you know, minorities, people of color, however you want to classify them. Um, So that is not what happens. And I think the glue for that to happen is social conservatism, which I am not. But it's one of these things where, you know, I, I don't see any other trajectories, frankly. Otherwise, I think we are deeply screwed. 
But don't you worry, though, that if that were to happen, that if, if the current uh, the Republican Party, as it's currently constructed, were to become somehow I, even more socially conservative or start like playing on different frequencies of social conservatism to appear to black voters and appeal to Latino voters, wouldn't that it seems like <clears throat> your argument should be that that would make it even more revanchist and even more dangerous because now it's like playing to all kinds of social conservatism on many different channels as opposed to just one. Uh, and, and it's like, bring me your you know, Latino alienated voters, your black alienated voters, your alienated voters of every kind. And now we're just one big alienated, angry party. That's that's true, but nothing. But that that's that's totally true, which is why this is like a second best option. I wish we were all just happy Obama Democrats. Um, but because we're not. And the thing, again, in American history that scares me the most is ethnic division, like nothing is scarier to me than that. That is America's thing. Um, avoiding that, I think, is, 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 has to be the highest priority. Look, this is what, this is what makes my take spicy. Well, it could have a, te- so you're arguing it could have a tempering function then. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Muy well, caliente. muy caliente. I fear <laughs> it is time to bring this hot take to a vote. I will commence by voting nuclear hot, hot, <laughs> hot. <laughs> Too hot. Wait to how vote ye. Chernobyl meltdown level hot. <laughs> wow. Shane? I, am over- I, w- I was with you at first, then you went too far, man. <laughs> I, I am over here like freebasing like Pepsi AC. This is too hot. <laughs> Benjamin, what is, is there any salvation for Alan? I, I hate to be conformist, but I'm, I'm, wow. I'm going to go with too hot as well. Especially, and, and Alan, I, yeah. I, I also just want to point out that if you had voted for me, I might, <laughs> I, I might think differently I about it. But yes, yes. there is, uh, you know, la vendetta. Yeah. Oh, la vendetta. Oh, no, we've gotten to the Ben singing opera stage. I would just like to say, as a just deep, deep order Muppet, I am delighted that I have burned you all to a crisp. I think you should get a special prize for being the only one who got... Uh, the uh, zero the, votes. Well, are, are all of one kind, sauce? all hot. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no range. Just one vote. No gray area here. <laughs> that, that was a real hot take. So, Respect Alan, it. when when are you pitching this to the Times? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I've been writing my uh, my slate email actually as as we've been talking. <laughs> it's already in. Uh, all right, folks. Well, that brings us to the end of this competition. Our top winner of the first Hot Take Takedown is none other than host emeritus Shane Harris. Shane, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And happy anniversary. Thank you. We will be shipping you your laurels to be sat on or whatever you choose to do with them. Lovely. Uh, in, In weeks to come. But for now, that brings us to the end of this very special episode of Rational Security. Before we leave, though, this would not be Rational Security Still if we did not leave you with a few very quick, because we're way over time, object lessons to think on until we are back in your ears next week. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Uh, My object lesson is the latest children's book that I'm really enjoying reading to my son. Uh, It is called I Like It When by Mary Murphy. It is about penguins and how much they love each other. And the best part about it, or one of the nice parts, is that it leaves the the gender of the parental penguin undefined. So finally, you know, hashtag representation matters. Nothing wrong with a good baby and mommy book, but where are the baby and daddy books? And and this is the closest I found lately. So it makes me feel really nice when I read it to my kid. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? 
I'm also going to recommend a book. Uh, it is Garrett Graff's new book on Watergate, which is titled Watergate. I have been reading it through. It is certainly apropos to current events and is generally just a rip-roaring, rollicking tale that has a lot of information I did not know. So definitely recommended. Wonderful. Well, I had the joy of spending Labor Day weekend in a lovely spot out in central Virginia. Not even central Virginia, really. Let's be honest. It was like Leesville or something, but it was still lovely. And I encountered a wonderful brewery I want to pass along to everyone in the northern Virginia, D.C. area called Wheatland Spring Farm. It does an amazing array of saisons uh, and other really unique blends using local flavors. This one, one I had is Land and Waters that harvested seagrass from Assateague and blended it with various Virginia hops. It's really, really phenomenal. Check it out, folks. That's my recommendation. Did it taste like horses? It It tasted very tart and sour in a way that I love. Some people did not, but I really love it and highly recommend it. Walked away with a few bottles myself to take home. So I highly recommend it. I I have been off beer for a while and I still could not help trying the whole range. I thought they're all phenomenal. So I highly recommend it. Ben, what do you have for us this week? So as uh, rational security listeners may know, I have spent the last two years uh, wearing only when possible uh, shirts with dogs on. Oh, God. And um, why did I come on? Dog shirts are extremely divisive. And one of my uh, only stalwart defenders in the dog shirt department has been Scott. But today I wore a dog shirt that offended even him. It is the Mastiff shirt. And he uh, took one look at it and says, I can't help you with that one. And so I just want to thank Scott for for a year uh, plus of defending dog shirts and knowing that uh, and and for learning today that every uh, thing has its limits, just like at some point Republicans will abandon Trump. At some point, Scott will abandon dog shirts. We, we have found the line. It is at Mastiff's a lovely breed and charming dog, but very hard to look at your boss wearing in high definition <laughs> too often in a given day. <laughs> it gets a little, a little bit much. Shane, what do you have to bring us out on this very special episode? I have here a book called uh, The Bride of the Wilderness by one Charles McCary. Uh, if listeners don't know Charles McCary, you should rush out and start reading him. Probably the greatest American espionage writer, uh, sort of often called the American La Carre, uh, sadly no longer with us, but the author of a tremendous number of books. The Bride of the Wilderness, which I'm looking forward to reading, uh, is not a spy thriller. It was actually a a different foray into uh, a different kind of genre fiction for him. But the fun part about this book is that I believe it's no longer in print. And I got this when I was just up in the Berkshires on vacation at a bookstore in Lenox, Massachusetts called The Bookstore, which you should also see a documentary about called Hello Bookstore, which is a tremendous film about this kind of pillar of the community uh, store and the man who runs it, Matt Tannenbaum, who sold me this book because he knew Charles McCary. He liked his work, wrote him a letter. They became great friends. Uh, so, uh, I'm not sure that McCurry actually gave him this copy that I have, um, but this is a twofer. So it's both the book and the film hello bookstore. It is a great feel good, very much. It's a wonderful life kind of story. And if you were ever in Lenox, Massachusetts, stop by the bookstore on Housatonic street and say hello to Matt. And he will recommend a great book for you. Like he did for me. I've been to that bookstore. I have drinking with Matt. He's a lovely man. I do believe he stole $20 from me, 
probably by accident. But other than that, delightful person. <laughs> it was considered his tip. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of this very special episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors. And, and become a material supporter. And become a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. I'll say it this one time perfectly, lest Ben make me repeat it five or six times just in case. Uh, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo, and our music as always was performed by Sophia Yan. We were once and again edited by the eternally, eternally patient and generous Jen Batchahal for the amount of editing this episode will probably require. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guests, Ben and Shane, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then... Goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.